Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. On the podcast today, Raphael Baer, the political commentator whose new book is Politics, A Survivor's Guide, How to Stay Engaged Without Getting Enraged. We've all facepalmed over certain political events in the last few years, and for Raphael, that sense of frustration potentially contributed to physical illness. Joining Raphael in conversation today is Jonathan Friedland, The Guardian columnist, author and broadcaster. If you'd like to hear this episode ad-free, head over to intelligencesquared.com membership or subscribe to our channel on the Apple Podcasts app to ditch the ads and enjoy lots of premium member-only content just for you. And if you want to keep up with upcoming events and talks just like this, why not visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to our newsletter to be the first to hear what's coming up and get heads up on a Events with people like Rory Stewart, Mary Beard, Gillian Tett, Michael Lewis, and much, much more landing straight to your inbox. Just follow the link in the episode description. But now let's join Jonathan Friedland with more. Thank you very much. As you heard there, we've got a brilliant guest to listen to tonight, colleague of mine, uh, and an extremely accomplished journalist and commentator, an award-winning political columnist, regularly appearing on TV and radio. He was formerly, before he became a colleague of mine, a political editor at the New Statesman, chief leader writer for The Observer, but previously, and we might talk about this, a correspondent in Eastern Europe for the Financial Times. Uh, he's been writing lo- you know, long form for a while, particularly long reads that you could get in Prospect magazine. But uh, finally, those of us who had long been urging him to write a brilliant book uh, were delighted because he did write his first book, um, which is, uh, uh, as Hannah mentioned, a brilliant blend of the personal and political uh, politics, a survivor's guide. So my great delight in welcoming uh, friend, colleague and much admired uh, political commentator, Raphael Baer. Hi, Johnny. Thank you for that wonderful introduction and for agreeing to do this, have this conversation, which we'd probably have had anyway, but we just wouldn't have done it with an audience present. We'd just be... Yes. I mean... That's the weirdness of this, which is you and I have talked about, wrestled with these issues for a long time, and now we're going to get it to do it in public. Um, and, uh, and, you know, but I, uh, you know, the book opens up a whole lot of new things that even you and I in our many long conversations haven't got into. Um, the way we're going to do it is that Raphael and I are going to talk, uh, for about the first 40 minutes or so. And then we really want to open it up, bring all of you in, um, with your own questions, but you can give, begin asking those right away, uh, now. Now. Um, and the instructions are like this. Underneath the video, you can uh, see a tab that says Ask a Question. Uh, you'll see that under the screen there. Click on that. Uh, a text box will drop down. Uh, write your question into that. And if you want your name to be mentioned, if you want to be identified with your question, do put that in there. Then click the Send button and they will reach uh, the uh, Brilliant Intelligence Squared team. And some of those will uh, make it all the way through to uh, RAF. So that's how to keep that going. Um, for now, though, we are going to get into uh, the, the conversation between uh, him and me. Happy for me to call you Raf in public like this with other people yes, listening? Or do you want to go full No, that, that, that's very much, that, that's half my name and as, as much as is necessary to identify me. <laughs> it's a good half. Um, so the, the, the book is really unusual because it is this blend of personal and political. It is part memoir. It's also you know analysis. It's polemic. It's all kinds of things. But it begins with a very particular personal event, which... Um, you know, struck you and triggered a whole series of, you know, ramifications for your life, but also your way of thinking. 
And I, I think in a way it really anchors the whole story you tell in this book, it, you know, to the extent you can bear to. Why don't you talk us through that very particular event? Well, yes. I mean, as you mentioned a, a moment ago, you know, a conversation about how to deal with the general state of politics and you know what ails democracy had been sort of floating around uh, in conversations with colleagues, in my own head, in my writing for a long time. Uh, and you know, th- this, we're talking about a period be- sort of between the Brexit referendum in particular, 2016, uh, running up to the moment where Boris Johnson wins the big general election, the majority landslide, uh, December 2019, uh, where which I think everyone will, who, who lived through it will recall as an incredibly febrile, intense, stressful time in British politics. And I was certainly no exception. Uh, I, I wasn't really aware of how heavily I think that was weighing down on me. Um, but then uh, I certainly looked terrible and felt pretty terrible, but I was working very hard and we all were. And uh, also during that period, I, I would sometimes exercise, you know, to try and stay fit, not very successfully. And I'd go out running uh, and uh, during those excursions, forays into exercise, I would often feel a sort of tight, burning pain across my chest, which uh, being an intelligent and well-informed erudite person, I brilliantly di- diagnosed as being a bit middle-aged and unfit and old uh, and entirely failed to diagnose as a very severe angina. Uh, until New Year's Eve 2019, when I went out for one of my runs and felt the severe chest pain, as I usually did, and thought nothing of it, apart from being a bit frustrated that I'd only managed to get about half a kilometre away from my front door. And then suddenly I had this sort of volcanic eruption, sort of like the alien in the film Alien, sort of felt as if it was sort of ripping out of my ribcage, uh, except nothing appeared. Um, and uh, I felt, well, essentially, I, it took me a moment to realise that this was probably exactly what one might be expecting to feel if one was suffering from an enormous heart attack. Uh, I then ruled that out as an option because, uh, you know, it was New Year's Eve, I had guests coming for dinner, you know, the salmon was already ready to go in the oven. It would have been a preposterous thing to do to have a heart attack at that moment. Um, and then I very quickly decided that actually I should get myself to hospital. Um, and to cut a long story short, uh, you know, spoiler alert, it wasn't a fatal heart attack because here I am. But in the process of of recovering from that and understanding some of the, the stresses and the pressures that had certainly contributed, I don't think it caused the heart attack, but contributed to the general state of my unhealth and unhappiness leading up to that, I was forced to really reappraise my relationship with, with politics, political journalism and writing. And, and that gave me the sort of the palette from which I was able to start drawing various things together, drawing various pictures of what I felt had gone wrong with British democracy. And more or less out of that sort of self-therapeutic, self-diagnostic exercise, that's that's where the book came from. So, and I mean, you were 44 when this happened or around yes, or younger? thereabouts. No, 44. So it's I think it's that's right. very, very young to have this heart attack. You explain in the book that there was a family history there. In fact, it was the memory of that that partly made you realise this isn't just being unfit. This is something more serious. And that's why you sort of head back home. But th- th- this notion there, that, I mean, New Year's Eve 2019, people remember, was barely more than a fortnight after the general election. Now that you've had conversations with doctors and experts, to what extent do you think, beyond being a brilliant metaphor for a writer of uh, about politics, to what extent do you think actually medically this was a reaction, a response to getting stressed and enraged, to cite your subtitle of your brilliant book, 
or, or, or is that just you know a rather brilliant framing device for this book? Um, it's a good question. Look, when I when I was discharged from the hospital, one of the things a nurse said to me was, um, you know, what do you do for a living? And I said, well, I'm a journalist. And they oh, how interesting. What do you write about? And I said, oh, politics. And she said, oh, is that stressful? And I thought, well, come to think of it, actually, yes, it is quite. <laughs> um, and look, the, the, crucially, I mean, I didn't know. Obviously, I don't think politics gave me cardiovascular disease. You know, there is a genetic predisposition uh, and I had spent most of my 20s with a cigarette in my mouth. That's definitely a big factor. Strongly would counsel against that, younger um, listeners. Uh, and eating too many pastries. So all these things. And I didn't have any... So I don't know what my kind of blood lipid count was or crucially what my blood pressure was before. Um, but it's definitely the case that you know, if you are sort of if if the if you're on a hair trigger for something like that, a period of very intense stress that I was unmistakably under can be a trigger. So I, I don't doubt that this was a a factor in it. But mostly, and this is why I, in the book I'm, I think I'm careful not to try and make it a huge, over elaborate, extended metaphor where somehow. Uh, my ill health becomes a, a, a vast simile for the body politic. That would be silly. It's more uh, the, the as I say, the enforced reconsideration of my own unhealthy relationship with politics uh, enabled me to then actually get the distance that I think made for an analytical view of some of the more complicated forces reaching back much further than 2016 to how we'd ended up in the state we were in. So it's, in, it, I mean, the point about it is, in a way, it's not just as the you know the nurse inquired and said, "Is it a stressful job?" It's not just that covering politics is stressful. It was something particular about that period. Yes, with deep roots, but that period, twenty sixteen to twenty nineteen, it seems from the book that it exerted a exacted a particular toll on you. I mean, just talk us through what were what were the feelings that that period in particular, beyond just the sort of day-to-day -day stress of covering Westminster, what particularly that period was stressing in you? Well, I think the the thing that I really came to understand when I examined it afterwards, I mean, it was, well, first, let's start with Brexit, because that was such a seismic event for all sorts of people uh, and in all sorts of ways. And, you know, we should remember also that, you know, I, I felt very passionately as a Remainer about, you know, I wanted Britain to stay in the European Union. I was also mindful of the fact that we'd had this huge democratic event and that, you know, more people had voted Leave than voted Remain. And they also felt very strongly about that. But what I came to understand was that there was something different about politics after 2016 in the way it was animating uh, something more visceral about my sense of belonging in British politics and belonging to British democracy. And there are a couple of things going on there. One was that sense that as a Remainer, once sort of the, the political narrative was established that sort of patriotism and national identity was a, a wholly owned property of the leave argument uh, and that people who were insisting that there might be a better way of managing leaving the European Union or even perhaps, you know, we should consider whether it's a good idea to do it at all, perhaps have a second referendum. That was never, was always felt ambivalent about that, but certainly it, well, I thought it was a legitimate argument to have. We were cast as uh, traitors, saboteurs, uh, parliamentarians were, were described as, uh, you know, as the same traitors, quislings, judges were called enemies of the people. And that sort of provokes a reach a sort of deeper, as I think I describe it in the book, as sort of someone running a sort of fingernail under the seam that joins you to the country uh, that you live in. And I'm 
first generation British or second generation generation immigrant. Uh, and I had never fully examined the extent to which that had a that meant there was an element of contingency in my feeling of belonging not just to britain as a as a society but british politics and having an investment in british democracy and to suddenly be in an environment where the the fundamental idea of what it meant to me to be british and therefore my stake in democracy was made sort of uh, vulnerable uh, was questioned in a more fundamental way. I, even that was very different to just my side lost an election or my preferred party was out of power. It was more profound than that. And then just to finish this point, something was happening in parallel, which we haven't yet mentioned, uh, which was that Jeremy Corbyn was leader of the Labour Party at that time. Um, and ordinarily in a situation of feeling anxious and unhappy about the state of British democracy or in an oppositional stance rather than my side being in power... I would gravitate towards that part of my identity that that felt it belonged with the opposition, uh, Labour Party, and uh, being Jewish and finding the, the what I felt to be the permission that Jeremy Corbyn gave to anti-Semitism to run riot within the Labour Party withdrew that as well. So there was a kind of a double pronged attack on my sense of how I could participate in British democracy and how I could belong in it, and and it drove me into a, a feeling of exile. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. Yeah, and the, th the thing you that was pushing you away, putting the Labour Party to one side for one moment, was a kind of nationalism. And I think British people feel often that nationalism is other people have nationalism. You know, nationalism occurs abroad rather than here. You offer in the book a beautiful definition of nationalism and the distinction between the, that separates nationalism from regular patriotism. I want you to say, you know, what that rather beautiful formulation is, but also what it was about that moment that made you feel that you know, the, the Britain across that line into, and maybe it's English nationalism, I don't know, but just, just give us that insight. Yeah, it's certainly, I think to go back to what you said at the beginning, I think it's absolutely right that there is a curious denial in British and English politics about uh, nationalism 
on the understanding. And I think some of this goes back to 1945 or even 1941, standing alone against uh, you know, the Luftwaffe and winning the war. And this sense that nationalism is a sort of a continental fever and Britain having its hundreds of years of, democracy, of established democracy uh, is somehow immune uh, and you know so it's the extent that someone like Nigel Farage who if you just look at the arguments that are being made you know we want our country back uh, there is a sort of a, a nostalgic idea of of, of what uh, Britain represented in the past that has been corrupted by outside influence we've been sort of colonized by an alien power in this case Brussels bureaucrats uh, and we will achieve a great moment of liberation and go back to simultaneously go back to our golden age where we were once a great trading nation you know the, the, the Somehow, the glory of the past is also a prescription for the future. That is archetypal nationalism. And yet, Nigel Farage would never call him, they never dare to say he runs something called an English Nationalist Party. That would be considered sort of icky and taboo. Um, uh, and so, somehow, these things, as I say, that, that were really very paradigmatic tropes of, of, of a nationalist project, just sort of flowed into the political mainstream. And then, and, and going back to then your question about, yeah, the distinction between nationalism and uh, just as a more general idea of patriotism, which I think is incredibly important because the two things just get sort of swilled around interchangeably. Uh, and crucially, the, the, the main way to, I mean, you, you, I, I hope you're right that I describe it well in the book. I can't remember exactly what I said, so I won't be able to quote it. Well, well what you say is that the, the both nationalism and patriotism romanticise the past, but nationalism is determined to reinstate it as a future. And then that is, if I remember it correctly. No, that's, that's right. And, and crucially also that, uh, that nationalism is a political project that wants to claim exclusive ownership of what it means to be proud of your country uh, and to enforce that at, essentially at the level of the state. Uh, and the thing, well, I think the point I make is that with, you know, I can feel, I'm capable of feeling very patriotic about all sorts of things. I'm a liberal-minded person, but that doesn't mean I'm not patriotic. I'm patriotic about, you know, the fact that Britain produced, you know, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. I'm patriotic about a certain type of, you know, British sense of humour. I'm patriotic about Marmite, you know, I think it's one of the greatest culinary inventions of modern civilization. <laughs> um, but you can allow all that for those things and also think um, it... it Britain is historically responsible for terrible crimes or that, you know, there are certain things that British government does that I would repudiate and be appalled by. And I don't have to, as it were, align everything I care about with regard to British identity with a group of other people who will have the, who will sort of take from the same drop down menu. Uh, and that can be represented as a political project. And that's a very important distinction. And Brexit crucially made that arrogation. It said there is now a, a sort of a mandatory set of things that you have to believe politically to qualify for mm. true pride in the national project. And 48% of you have just disqualified yourself. Sorry, bye. Yeah. And so when you get citizens of nowhere and so on, that's suddenly you felt on the wrong side of that new divide. And, par and partly it's your politics, but it's also partly the fact that you did grow up in a different kind of household. Yeah, I think, I mean, this is why... Uh, one of the things I, I, I hadn't pondered before I looked at this and started researching it, uh, although when I, I mean, I've been a, in the lobby in, in, in Parliament, so I've been sort of security vetted. And as part of that, I had to go through this whole process of, of digging out my parents' naturalisation certificates, the point at which uh, they had to sort of swear loyalty to Her Majesty the Queen um, because they were South African. 
Um, and you know, then I realised, well, actually, my qualification, automatic qualification to be British by virtue of being born in Britain really was a product of a very small window in UK immigration policy that closed in 1983 with the Nationality Act. And had I been born 10 years later, I would have had a South African passport um, and had to go through a very different process of naturalisation to qualify as British. And I don't know whether my sense of loyalty or belonging or even my taste for Marmite would be different under those circumstances. Um, But certainly... You know, it meant that when, for example, as part of the Brexit process, there was this business of 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 the EU nationals who had moved to the UK, exercising their freedom of movement, uh, essentially taking advantage of a contract that meant that the political space they were in was the European one, and they didn't have to be British citizens, but they could set up home here, have jobs, marry, have children, fall in love, make friends, all these things, and then. For Brexit to retrospectively sort of reach back in time and say, actually, the thing that qualified you to be here, to call this place your home, is now annulled and it's not your home. That was a different type of immigration intervention than anything, even the most draconian thing that had gone before, because it was pulling out a rug from underneath people's sense of automatic belonging. It was changing, it was moving the goalposts. And I, again, I felt that uh, that made me, that animated that sense of contingency, of vulnerability, that even if it wasn't entirely rational, was, was sort of irrefutable. Yeah. And the combination of these two sets of feelings you've described, the, you know, the Brexit-related one, that Corbyn period, was to make you um, feel... Uh, under great stress, even if you hadn't fully realised how much. The, 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 the subtitle of the book is uh, How to Stay Engaged Without Getting Enraged. And uh, it's interesting because there are some people who think, you know, when you think about the climate crisis, for example, or you think about the, you know, Donald Trump lying and saying he won the 2020 election and 40% of Americans believing him. Um, or you, you think of, um, you know, the PP procurement scandal, Mich- Michelle Moan, you know, where taking a ton of public money uh, at a moment of national crisis. Some will say, how do you respond to that with anything but rage? And it's righteous, it's legitimate, it's righteous anger, and it's rage that gets people out on the streets and protesting. You know, is Raf telling us to sort of sedate ourselves and, uh, you know, take a Valium, take a chill pill, and not be enraged because that, look, it led to a very bad set of circumstances for him, but maybe, you know, draining it out of all politics, is that a problem? Yeah, I, I dismiss the subtitle as beta blockers will solve all of your political problems. No, and, the, and it's, um, no, it's a really important distinction because, and, I, and again, it's what I, I, I'm at pains to, to make in the book. I hope I make it clear enough that, you know, I'm not against anger as a political response because precisely all the reason you say anger is not only a legitimate response to terrible politics, um, but the necessary impulse to action against terrible politics. And what I'm talking about uh, is something I think important and different, which is a sort of an incapacitating sort of red mist that that clouds your ability to judge. First of all, judge what's important, what matters. It clouds your ability to judge what are the origins of your anger? What, what is it? You know, where should you be focusing uh, this anger? And also it, it cultivates actually a kind of cynicism. And it's a bigger driver of apathy, I think, than just the sort of anger that makes people... It's great if people want to go out and demonstrate and protest you know, most of the time. 
But I think actually, uh, for a lot of people, what rage does is it, it, it stimulates actually the fight or flight response. That means they, they're better off withdrawing altogether. And there's a great a line I quote um, uh, Philip Roth from one of his novels, uh, where he says, where actually a character in the book says, you know, anger is to make you effective. That's why it's given to you. Uh, you know, it's, it, basically, it's the evolutionary function of, of that or that that will that will mobilize you to do something. But as soon as it stops doing that, you have to drop it. And, you know, this is why, again, in, in the middle section of the book, I, I sort of go into particularly the sort of the technology and the digital sphere and social media and some of the artificial rage-inducing machines that mean there is a particular kind of synthetic anger, synthetic fury that is a very powerful political fuel for a certain type of political movement but not necessarily conducive to good democracy. And we should say this because you talk about it in the book and you're very honest about it. It's not like you're here analysing some behavioural trait of other people, that other sort of lesser people can be stirred up and riled up by Twitter and you are sort of cool and Olympian and watching from above. You admit in the book that you yourself are vulnerable to that particular form of rage, that all the kind of algorithms and drivers, they worked on you. Absolutely. I remember I have a very clear memory of a moment when I was late one night. This was again you know, pre-2019 uh, and uh, you know, engaged, uh, just sort of probably arguing with, with someone or something that might well have been a robot as far as I know, looking back on it, but certainly sort of just getting really stuck in. And I got a text message on my phone from a very good friend of mine just saying, Raf, step away from the keyboard. And someone had seen me, op- the way I was operating on, on Twitter, thinking this is not good for you. And I now see it, I've seen it in lots of other people as well. Um, and you know this it, as you say it, this is you know it, the it's very seductive and very deceptive people don't think of anger as an addictive substance because you think of addiction as something that you that you sort of take up when it when it's at least initially pleasurable you know so i've never been addicted to heroin but i bet the first few times it's great uh, then it goes very badly wrong um i've been a nicotine addict so i know how hard it is to quit a very addictive substance but actually anger also stimulates a lot of the hormonal and chemical and neurological reactions that become compulsive and habit forming uh, and it, it is a it is a kind of addiction and one that the the technology uh, the infrastructure of, of social media is very well designed to sustain because constantly engaged or constantly sort of locked in uh, adrenaline fueled users are the best customers because they they're not exercising rational judgment uh, they're doing things on impulse which means they're buying on impulse and that's yeah. that's good for business it's interesting the nicotine reference because it means you have got a sort of uh, sympathy in some ways empathy for the people who are caught up in all this we should just say some of the strategies you've devised to deal with your own susceptibility to addiction it's you you sort of have engaged in the social media equivalent of putting the packet of cigarettes in a kind of safe on six feet underground haven't you yeah absolutely i mean i I remember when i first tried to give up using social media i remember actually once being on on holiday and thinking well i'm not going to look at my phone for a few days and uh, this was long after I'd given up smoking, but I do remember getting this kind of twitchiness and this strange feeling of absence in my hands uh, and a restlessness, like a, a, just a sort of fizzing itchiness all over your body that you couldn't quite pin down. And if I suddenly realised it felt exactly like giving up smoking. Um, uh, and, I mean, in terms of what, you know, what you're describing in social media, uh, it's very difficult when you're a political journalist. You'll know as well as I do, Johnny, that the 
a lot of modern politics is conducted through that media too much. But it does mean that if you're never looking at it, you don't know what's going on. You are missing a, a, at least a portion of the stage on which politics is being played out. So you have to be aware of it. And so you have to get the balance right. And so for that, I, I took to sort of changing my password to something incomprehensible and unmemorable, writing on a piece of paper, essentially giving it to my wife and said, don't let me look at this until I next have to write a column and then I'll be allowed some time on social media, which is sort of pathetic, but it, it ultimately it, it, it does work. You know, you have Have to... you stuck with that? Is that still your approach? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, I've got, I'm, I'm a bit better policing it myself now because actually what you realise with a little bit of remove from it is that sim- just as with giving up any other addiction, there comes a moment where you start to feel better <laughs> for not having this thing going on. And certainly... Uh, the, the 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 two things I really identified in, with, with, with in terms of prolonged abstinence from social media. One, the anger it definitely goes away, uh, and not entirely, obviously, but as I say, the, the wrong kind of anger goes away. Yeah. So I can still get frustrated by what's going on in British politics, but I'm not actively, I'm not seeing petty, stupid, small things, niggling rage that just gets under your skin in, in a, but also makes you feel kind of helpless. I'm not being exposed to that. Um, and the other thing is allowing a train of thought or an idea to to just roll through a few more stations on the track before you derail it by doom scrolling through something else. It's, it was incredibly revealing to me that I was using my phone as a device to interrupt my own cognition and that, that and as if almost like a fear of where imagination and natural thought process might go to. Um, and again, those no, society did with going off on tr- different track here but this is why i think it's incredibly important to limit children's use of these devices because i just think it, they are the enemy of the sort of interior world of imagination that you mm. you need to get a bit bored to to yes. experience and to start thinking of new things rather than pre-thought things exactly j- j- just an area on where rage c- can occur and or rather perhaps it's a different response it's not rage so much as despair and uh, i go back to my point about the climate crisis and you look around and the planet is burning up as you and I speak now heat waves in Greece in Italy people uh, being sort of effectively like airlifted out of holiday destinations you know wildfires and so on the scientists saying you know it's too late we're past the point of 1.5 degrees etc and then the tiniest little bit of movement which is Sadiq Khan has a little bit of clean air policy, it's not even a climate change policy, and the voters of Uxbridge and South Ryslip rejected as a by-election. And all the talk then is that politicians think, we just, we've done too much. We've got to be less green because people don't like it. I think that is just one example. But, you know, that would be one. Another one would be close to home because you were a correspondent in that neighbourhood where Vladimir Putin invades a sovereign neighbour and you know, they're fighting heroically, but the, you talk to the experts, they say eventually they'll be sort of ground down or whatever. We, you know, and I could mention Israel as well. The point is, you look around and there's all kinds of trends that induce, if not rage, something maybe worse, which is a kind of despair. Um, and I wonder how you, not only how you deal with that, the set of feelings that stirs, but how you would then advise us to deal with it, because maybe despair is not much is is not a spur to action, you know, compared to engaged enragement. Yeah, I mean, this this is was clearly the hardest thing in the book for me was getting that balance between 
essentially a realistic appraisal of how bad things are uh, and not sort of falling into a state of sort of panic and abject despair and or, or and not alternatively also not trying to cultivate a kind of Pollyanna-ish optimism as a sort of saccharine antidote to the sadness of what's really going on. Um, and just on that, that last point, you know, there are ways you can configure these things differently. And so I'd say I'm not trying to be kind of naive about this, but, you know, actually the, it, the consensus on climate change that is actually happening uh, in certainly in the UK is is way stronger. And you look at opinion polls, people care about it a lot more across demographic groups. Uh, certainly younger voters, it's really animating, but not just younger voters. Um, the, the Yes, it is true that the Conservatives are, are sort of going weak at the knee about net zero, but they're also losing. Even in, you mentioned, you know, Uxbridge and West Ryslip, there were more, that more people voted for the Green Party uh, twice as many people voted for the Green Party as there was, as is the size of what's left of the Tory majority there. So if half the people who'd voted Green had voted Labour, it wouldn't be a Tory seat. Now, I'm not saying yeah, that might be Keir Starmer's fault for not giving those people enough reason to vote for him. But ultimately, it's not that the people of West Ryslip don't care about the environment. They don't. They, they, something else was going on there. Lots of things were going on there. Um, in Russia, I mean, the the reality is... It seems almost inevitable that, you know, this totalitarian, brutal, monstrous machine would steam through Ukraine and it would all be over. And Putin gambled on that. And he thought the West would react exactly as they had done when he took Crimea, when he invaded Georgia. And it didn't happen. And Putin is losing or certainly or at least he's doing badly enough that the idea that, you know, that somehow anything other than liberal democracy has been advertised as a successful alternative model. It, 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 it's, it, and all that is, and, it's, and you could hold up uh, Putinism uh, as anything other than an angry, embittered, moral and intellectual cul-de-sac in flight from democracy uh, is absurd. That, that's clearly not happening. Um, and finally, on this point, you know, the, through every stage of, you know, modern, certainly modern, modern history, modern British history, when there has been a time of turbulence and uncertainty, you will find commentary and people saying we are absolutely doomed. This is a disaster. I, I looked at lots of things that were written in the 1970s. Uh, people, commentators saying there probably won't even be a Britain in 20 years time. You know, you, you imagine, you know, think of the early 1960s, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis, how close we came to total nuclear annihilation. Um, and it is very hard to know when you sort of zoom the lens out from a time of, of fibrility and anxiety, whether it's sort of 1977 and the issue is people aren't collecting the bins, but will pull through, or it's summer 1914 and something absolutely apocalyptic is about to go off. And I don't yeah. know, but I do know that if we just assume it's the latter, then we are going to substantially limit our ability to avert the worst case scenario. If, if, if every bad yeah. political movement that you come across, you presume is, is fascist jackboots on cobblestones coming around the corner, then you've already accelerated towards that outcome by saying, well, democracy's failed, it can't work. It can, it does work. In this country, we are almost certainly going to have a peaceful regime change next year. And I don't think Rishi Sunak, however unpleasant he might be or however many unpleasant conservatives there might be around him, will do what Donald Trump did uh, or will say, you know, actually, I'm, I'm refusing to give up power. I'm staying forever. That's not going to happen. So, yeah, I, I don't, again, don't want to sound naive, but nor do I think 
that necessarily we should despair. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Hannah Kay with editing from Tom Hall. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should be talking about next, who we should have on and what our future podcasts should be. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com. And while you're there, do sign up to our newsletter to find out more about everything coming up at Intelligence Squared.